Well, as many of you know, my family has just been away for a couple of weeks' holiday. Thanks to everyone who prayed for us. We really did have a great time. But that's not to say that everything went exactly to plan. Uh, way through our trip, we went to the Warrumbungle National Park, a lovely place and a place I've always wanted to go to for one particular reason, the Grand High Tops Walk. Considered by some to be New South Wales' best bushwalk, ending with a view that many call heavenly. So there we were, and we set out on our bushwalk, everyone as keen as mustard. But then it happened. A couple of kilometres into our walk, we came across a sidetrack leading to a scenic lookout. Sounds all right, we thought, and so off we went. But as we went on, we noticed the track getting narrower and narrower and rougher and rougher. And before we knew it, we weren't walking on a well-trodden path anymore, but scrambling over boulders. Yet on and on and on we went, kilometre after gruelling kilometre. That's when things started to get pretty ugly. No longer in the cool of the valley, but with the sun beating down on us. There we were, hot and sweaty, huffing and puffing. Three out of four of us now with painful blisters on our feet. Our water bottles nearing empty. And a couple of us realising that, well, we're not quite as young as we used to be. Eventually, we came to another sidetrack with a sign that read, look out 100 metres this way. Though when we looked to where we actually had to go, we noticed it wasn't so much 100 metres this way as this way. At which point we all said, forget it. And calves aching, we slowly made our long way back down to the main path. By the time we finally got there, we were exhausted. And so we made the unanimous decision to head back to the car park. So much for reaching the heavenly views of the grand high tops. And all because we'd wandered off the right path. Well, over the last few weeks here at church, we've been looking at the book of James. And I think it's fair to say that James is writing to a bunch of people who have wandered off the right path. That is, they've wandered from the right spiritual path, God's path, the path of faith and obedience. Instead, they've been wandering down a path marked by spiritual adultery and worldliness and dead faith. It's what James might call the path of double-mindedness. I'm sure his readers say they believe in Jesus, but that's not seen in the way they're living. And as a result, things have gotten pretty ugly. Do you remember? There's been bickering and fighting and grumbling amongst these Christians. Some are showing favouritism, whilst ignoring those in need. They're, they're judging each other, exploiting each other, slandering each other. The rich are, are living in arrogance, self-indulgence, and the poor are envying them. No, it is not a pretty sight at all. And so throughout this letter, 
It's like James has been waving his arms, calling these Christians to, to come back to the right path, warning them that as it is, they're in danger of being judged by God and never getting to, well, to the grandest high tops, so to speak, heaven. Today we reach the final section of the book. And in it, James tells his readers what it looks like to stay on the right path. It's an important message for them. And it's an important message for us here today as well. If you don't already have James, open, uh, J- James chapter 5 open in front of you, let me encourage you to look it up now. James starts by telling his readers that, that walking down the right path, the path of faith and obedience, will mean telling the truth to one another. It'll mean being honest. And so he tells them that they shouldn't swear, by which he, he doesn't have foul language in mind, but rather the fact that they shouldn't take oaths. You know, for example, uh, I, I swear by my great Aunt Martha's grave that it, it wasn't me who ate the last Tim Tam. Instead, James says a simple yes or no is all that's needed. No, it was not me who ate the last Tim Tam. Here read with me, James chapter 5, verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Now, obviously, this is a very serious matter. So what's going on? Well, though we're not told the exact circumstances here, it's interesting that James pretty much echoes the words of Jesus on this topic from from the Gospel of Matthew. And there we are told the specific situation Jesus was addressing. It seems, ironically, that the Pharisees were using oaths as a way of, of lying and getting away with it. So they would say things like, yeah, Sure, I I swore by the temple that I didn't eat the last Tim Tam. Ha-ha, but I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, so it doesn't actually count. It's a bit like someone today who says, yeah, that's what I said, but I had my fingers crossed the whole time. And this being the likely scenario James is addressing, I don't think he is prohibiting oaths altogether. After all, elsewhere in the Bible, we see legitimate oaths taking place and and even God himself taking oaths. So I don't think this passage means that if a court of law requires you to take an oath, you need to refuse it. What I do think James is saying is stop lying to one another and be a people of integrity. Keep oaths out of it. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be people of your word. I like the way commentator Douglas Moo puts it. He says, Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. Our mere word should be as utterly trustworthy as a signed document, legally correct and complete. So let me ask, does truth matter to you? 
Does truth matter to you? Do others know you to be a person of your word? It can really harm our relationships when trust is broken through lying, can't it? And the lack of integrity more completely undermines our testimony to the world. But the worst part of it is our lies and deceit ultimately reveal our failure to trust God in all the circumstances of our lives. I mean, that's why we lie, isn't it? Why we exaggerate, why we twist the truth. Because we don't trust God to work things out for us when we obey him and tell the truth. And so we lie to get ourselves out of trouble or to make ourselves look better or or to get what we want. But ultimately, that reveals a godless, dead faith. So here James is is in effect saying, hey guys, you're on the wrong path and if you don't turn back, you're heading to hell. Instead, these Christians need to start demonstrating a real faith that has God at the centre. A faith that expresses itself in, in prayer, regardless of circumstances. So James says, are you in trouble? Then don't lie, pray. Pray that God will take your trial away or that he'll give you the grace to persevere through it. And if life's going splendidly for you, he says, well, you should pray then too, singing songs of praise, not being arrogant or boastful, but but humbly acknowledging that every good gift comes from your heavenly Father and giving credit to him for it. Do you get it? Life is always going to be a mixture of ups and downs, Yet there's no situation in life where prayer isn't appropriate. I reckon my kids have a lot to teach me in this area. The fact is, I want my kids, I want them to pray deep stuff. And sometimes they do. But often, they pray things like, Dear God, thank you so much that we could organise a wedding for our toys today. Like, honestly, that was the major topic of prayer at our dining table one night this last week. Here's the happy couple on their honeymoon. You know, hardly, hardly a prayer for the spiritual revival of our nation. So, yes, we, we are working on deepening our kids' prayers. But there's also something very beautiful about those childlike prayers. The way they just bring everything to God. Because that's life lived in relationship with God, isn't it? It's living faith. And so, friends, let's be a people who pray often and in all circumstances. But then James narrows the focus to give detailed instructions about what should happen when someone is sick. He says that an unwell person should call for the church elders to come and anoint them with oil and pray over them. Now, obviously, this isn't just a little <laughs> sniffle he's got in mind here. This person seems to be bedridden. Uh, that's why they have to call the elders to come to them. And no doubt why the elders pray over them. You know, they, they seem to be incapacitated. 
But what's really striking about these verses is James' certainty that the sick person will not only be forgiven, but also healed physically. Here, read with me from verse 13. Verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. What's going on here? Well, in context, I think, I think James specifically has in mind those who are wandering away from God. After all, that's what this whole letter has been about. Some of these people, it seems, have gotten sick as part of God's loving discipline on them. God is using their sickness to get their attention. And of course, we know from other parts of the Bible that uh, at times God does use sickness as a way of disciplining his children. So, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we're told how some people, uh, some of the Christians in in, in the church, were uh, getting sick and, and even dying because of their sin. And in that case, the Apostle Paul tells his readers to examine themselves and to turn back to God in in repentance and faith. And I think that's what's going on here in this passage too. I like what Christian author Sam Aubrey has to say about it. He says, In the context of enormous double-mindedness among God's people, James urges the sick to call for the elders precisely because it may be a matter of spiritual discipline, where Christian leadership is required. The elders are then to pray for the repentant sinner's health to be restored. If the sickness is indeed divine discipline, it will be lifted. The sick person will be made well, both in body and spirit. Anointing with oil is an appropriate practice in such a situation, since anointing in Scripture symbolises being set apart and consecrated to God, given over fully to him and his purposes. This is exactly what repentance should mean for the double-minded. Do you get it? A sickness is not always the result of God's discipline on our sin, and I dare say generally it's not but it can be. And so times of sickness are opportunities, opportunities for us to to examine ourselves. And if we need to repent, we should do so. And if our sickness happens to be on account of our sin, God will most certainly heal us. More importantly, though, he'll forgive us too. Well, James then goes on to say that actually... It's not just the elders these Christians should confess their sin to and have pray for them. It's actually something all Christians are called to be a part of, regardless of their position in the church. James envisions a grace-filled, authentic church community where people are bravely confessing their sins to one another and offering forgiveness. Again, quoting Sam Albury. Repentance is a church family concern. We all have a responsibility to one another in this area. We need to have the kind of friendships where we can share our struggles. 
We need to have people to whom we can confess major and persistent sin. We need to be humble enough to do so. We will not be in a position to do this unless we spend time cultivating meaningful, safe and open friendships with others at church, whether through structures like a Bible study group or prayer triplet, or through the informal friendships that emerge when we take fellowship seriously. You know, my fear here at Chatswood Presbyterian is that, uh, that some, there are some people who think that, that all you need to do is turn up and hear a sermon and you've done church. It's why I'm increasingly uncomfortable with how some people are approaching Zoom church. You know, any church where you can turn up as a, a mute blank screen with the ability to, to click a button and, and vanish at any mention of us connecting with others in a breakout room is a great worry to me. And so I encourage all of us in Zoom church and in face-to-face church to think seriously, to think seriously about the kind of community we're called to here in the book of James. Please, let's, let's take the time to speak into each other's lives here at church. And if you aren't already in a Bible study group, let me encourage you to, to join one and to make it a priority. Because we need to be in each other's lives. Because that's how we can help each other stay on track. Yet James's vision goes further. He also longs to see a community of people fervently praying for one another. Not only for healing from sickness, but for one another's repentance and godliness too. And as an encouragement to pray boldly, James points to the example of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. You might remember that Elijah once prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three and a half years. And then he prayed that it would, and it did. I mean, wow, pretty amazing. But James's point is not, hey, wasn't Elijah extraordinary, but rather that actually Elijah was just a human being like the rest of us. It's God who's extraordinary. And he's the same God who can powerfully respond to our prayers too. Here, read with me from verse 16. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. It's true, all prayer is powerful, But I suspect James has in mind here a particular kind of prayer. And again, I think context can help us understand what's going on. Remember, Elijah's ministry took place at a time of great spiritual wandering in Israel, just like among James's readers. And Elijah's prayers for the rain to stop weren't just so he could go out on, on, on a picnic. 
nor were his prayers for, for rain just so he could see his garden grow. Now, his prayers were ultimately about calling people back to God. And so here, James is assuring us that our prayers for straying brothers and sisters hold that same kind of great power. It is such an encouraging thought. It means all of us, all of us, can make a huge difference in people's lives on our knees. You know, as I think back to my university days, I know how close I came to wandering away from Jesus. And I'm convinced that I'm only here today because of the faithful prayers of those who loved me enough to intercede on my behalf. I mean, how, how cool is heaven going to be? It's going to be so cool. I, I, I reckon, imagine that first day, I reckon it's going to be like, you, you, you're, you're here, you're here. I can't believe it. And God will be like, what do you mean? You prayed for him, didn't you, to be here? You prayed for him, of course he's here. And we'll be so thrilled to see how God use, has used our prayers. And then for some people, it'll be like, whoa, you know, I made it. I'm here, I persevered, I made it. And God will be like, yeah, of course you did. You see that person over there from Chatswood Presbyterian? They were praying for you the whole time. It's going to be so cool. Let me tell you what I don't want to be on that day. I don't want to be standing there hearing those conversations around me, kicking myself for not believing that God could mightily use my prayers too. Friends, fact is, as we walk on God's path, our prayers are powerful and effective. Why? Why wouldn't we pray? And it's with that marvellous thought that James wraps up his letter by more or less saying, and now, guys, over to you. You see, throughout the whole letter, James has been calling these wanderers back to God. And now he encourages them to go and do the same for others who have strayed from the path with the wonderful encouragement that they could make an eternal difference in someone's life. Here, read with me these final verses from verse 19. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know, these verses kind of remind me of John Simpson Kirkpatrick. Today is, of course, Anzac Day, and John Simpson Kirkpatrick has, has become something of an Anzac legend for the way he would go out on his donkey to retrieve soldiers who had fallen wounded in battle. Left where they were, they would, they'd surely die. And so he'd risk his life to go out and bring them back. Who knows how many lives he saved in the process before he sadly lost his own. But it's Simpson's attitude of no man left behind, 
that James is encouraging here. He wants his readers to do whatever they can to lead spiritual wanderers back from the path of destruction onto the path to eternal life. And so, friend, I wonder, I wonder, is there someone you need to call today? Someone you need to organise a coffee with? Perhaps someone you haven't seen here at church for a while? Uh, Perhaps someone who seems to be drifting or, or is being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Of course, it could be awkward, right? Might even test your friendship. I guess Simpson also had his own reasons for not going out onto that battlefield, but he took the risk because he put others before himself. And friends, now we are called to do the same. Yes, your friend might get angry and defensive, but on the other hand, she may just repent And thank you for all eternity for your courageous love. Who knows? Who knows? And with that, we come to the end of today's passage and the end of James. What have we seen? Well, today, like in the whole letter, James has been calling spiritual wanderers back to the path of faith and obedience and off the path of double-mindedness. He's called us to stop lying and start telling the truth, to turn to God in prayer and praise regardless of our circumstances, to confess and repent of our sin, to pray for one another, knowing that our prayers are powerful, and to do whatever we can to help wanderers get back onto God's path. And so, friends, in God's strength, let's go do it. But friend, if, if you're here today and you realise you're wandering, making choices you know are selfish and sinful, godless and faithless, then friend, I want my last words today to be for you. You know, when my family started to wander onto that sidetrack on our bushwalk, I wish someone had have stood in our way and said, hey, don't go up there. It's not worth it. Stay on the path. It's where you want to be. Because our wandering cost us a lot. And we never did manage to make it and see that heavenly view. Though I have told my children that if they ever go back there, they need to strap my urn to their back and take me with them. As it is, however, we didn't make it. That was disappointing. But nothing like the eternal disappointment that comes from missing out on the grandest high tops of heaven. Friend, are you wandering wandering off God's path? Then let me be that person who says, don't go there. It's not worth it. Stick with Jesus. I know it's hard, but it's the only path to eternal life. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered, Jesus wants you back. And his grace is big enough to cover all your sins. You've got to believe it. Maybe you know 
uh, the hymn we sing sometimes here at church called Come Thou Fount. It was written in the 1700s by a young man by the name of Robert Robinson. The first verse says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. But I think perhaps the most poignant lines of the hymn are in the final verse. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think those words really resonate with many of us. And they certainly proved rather prophetic for Robert Robinson, who sadly at the end of his life, it seems, did wander away from Jesus quite significantly. There's a, a widely told story that one day, not long before he died, uh, Robinson was uh, riding in a stagecoach and a lady asked him what he thought of the hymn she was humming, which just so happened to be, come thou found. Robinson replied bitterly, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. To which the woman gently replied, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. Did Robert Robinson come back to Jesus? Ultimately, we don't know. But what we do know is streams of mercy were there waiting for him if he did. And they're waiting for you too, friend. Jesus stands with his nail-pierced hands outstretched, ready to cover a multitude of your sins and save you from death. So please, stop your wandering. Leave the worthless path you're on and come back to him today. Let's pray. Well, our Father, thank you so much for your boundless love and mercy. Thank you for Jesus and the salvation we have through him. Please fill us with faith and single-minded devotion to our Saviour. And may that be seen in the way we live Help us to be a truth-telling, prayerful, confessing community who lovingly call back our wanderers. And if there are any here this morning, Father, please help them find again in Jesus those, those streams of mercy never ceasing and help us all to stay on his path, persevering to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.